everyone. Welcome to this episode of Wall Street to Main Street. I'm your host, Emily Advani, here with my co-host and my husband, Ruben Advani. Hey, Ruben. Hi, Emily. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, let's start out this new year with a little bit of a recap of how we ended 2018 and what we can expect in 2019. I know that's a big nut to crack, but let's just get started. Terrific. Well, I would sum up the end of 2018 with one word, anxiety. Anxiety peaked across financial markets and some- Or you just mean your- Well, mine as well, my personal anxiety as well. Uh, but it also even to some degree affected Main Street, uh, not not by a significant degree, not the degree uh, at, at which we felt anxiety back in 2008 and 2009, but it was starting to creep onto Main Street as well. So what was this all about? Well, for starters, the stock market had its biggest drop in the month of December since the Great Depression. Uh, that's a, around, the Great Depression the, or Great Recession? Well, the Great Depression. The stock market tumbled in December of 2018, and it was the worst December on record since the Great Depression. Now, how does that translate in today's terms? Do they take in account certain factors? Because does the stock market of then look like the stock market of now? Well... That's an interesting observation. So the simple answer is no. The stock market of the, the, the Great Depression does not look like the stock market in the new millennium. Well, they didn't have the FANG stocks. They didn't have the FANG stocks. <laughs> there you go. Amazon uh, did not exist in those days. Uh, so that, that does play, play a factor. And that's why you sort of have to take these things with, with a grain of salt. And as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, uh, momentum and volatility are far different today than they were back in the, in the in the 30s now it was nonetheless a disturbing statistic one that, that created even more anxiety when people thought about it because anytime you couple the term stock market with great depression people grow fearful uh, fortunately the new year is off to a much better start in the month of january we're seeing some nice consistent gains in the stock market, and people generally are starting to feel that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So going back to the end of 2018, there was a a seismic shift in terms of economic perception, and much of that was driven by the trade war that was seemingly endless. When the U.S. ratcheted up sanctions or um, tariffs, China seemed to follow suit. And more and more, this was proving costly for both importers as well as exporters. And those costs, in turn, translate to higher prices on Main Street. So we saw this across industries. And with no clear direction, folks were speculating that this trade war could go on indefinitely. And that created a great deal of economic and financial market tumult. So that was issue number one. Issue number two was the Fed. The Fed signaled that it would continue a process of raising rates well into 2019. Now, as we've discussed previously, when the Fed raises rates, the cost of borrowing goes up. The cost of borrowing for not only corporations, but for individuals. So all of a sudden, buying a home becomes more challenging for people on Main Street. Obtaining credit for a business becomes more challenging. 
So people were concerned about these two factors, and that created heightened anxiety. And in December, with no clear end in sight, people decided to sell their stocks. And that was further exacerbated by major money funds deciding to unload their, um, their positions at the, year, at the end of the year. So that, uh, that created really quite uh, disturbing results. Now, 2019, where do we go from here? Now, you said we're off to a better start. Would you call it calmer or we're seeing an uptick? I would say none of the above. I would say we're seeing more direction. Now, that's translated to an uptick. One thing financial market participants despise more than anything else is uncertainty. Now, we don't have certainty yet, but we have direction. And direction is really the first step towards certainty. So last week, the Fed chairman at a roundtable discussion said that uh, he was, in, 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 in essence, reaching a comfort level with where the Fed is, and more importantly, uh, is willing to, in effect, put the brakes on further rate increases, depending on what data they see. This is exactly what the market needed to hear. Previously, the Fed seemed adamant about proceeding with a series of rate hikes, but now their tune is more around the idea that, well, we'll wait and see. If needed, we'll hike. If not, we're comfortable pausing as well. So then investors feel like you said there's a direction. Maybe it's not certainty, but they feel like they can make a guess at what might happen next. Exactly. They can now examine the same economic data that the Fed looks at and have a sense as to whether the Fed may raise or the Fed may pause. That's good for everybody. Secondly, we're starting to see signs of progress in the discussions with China. And perhaps there will be a resolution to this trade war, this trade war that has plagued us now for the better part of a year. So folks are growing more optimistic that we can resolve the trade war, the Fed may pause, and we can resume that impressive pattern of growth that we've observed now for nearly 10 years. One of the stocks that people often look at or companies people often look at to get sort of a pulse on what's going on is Apple. Now, Apple has seen some interesting days at the end of 2018 and now in the start of the new year. Can you give us a little bit of an overview on what may be going on there? Well, um, to sum it up, Apple went from being one of the best performing stocks to one of the worst performing stocks. So Ruben, what happened? How does a company like Apple fall from grace so quickly? I think it was a combination of factors, but ultimately these factors really coalesce around one concept, and that is innovation. Does Apple still have the ability to innovate new products? Over the, the last several months, questions have, have, have arisen around Apple's next big product. Apple has relied largely on the iPhone for many years, and that's what's been driving its growth. But signs have emerged that interest in the iPhone is diminishing. In other words, Apple cannot continue to grow its revenue by simply selling iPhones and related services around iPhones. And only a few weeks ago, Apple's uh, CEO, Tim Cook, came out and said that our quarterly numbers will come in 
lower than expected to the tune of nearly $9 billion. Now that sounds like a, that still sounds like a lot to me. It's a lot. $9 billion shortfall in revenue is, is, is a big deal. And much of this has to do with the fact that Apple is a casualty of the trade war. Much of that comes from China sales. China's a big market for Apple. And people are saying, well, it's not just China. Now, when they look under the hood, they're recognizing that, well, what else does Apple have in its pipeline? I also read that Apple is actually slowing production on its iPhones. Um, What does Apple need to do here to regain its footing? number of people are asking that question as we speak and the challenge is innovation tends to be cyclical and requires some lead time now apple has other ideas related to emerging growth technologies we're not clear how far along they are in terms of productizing these ideas so it's it's anyone's guess as to whether apple when and rather um how Apple will produce the next great thing. More importantly, Apple has a great deal of cash on their balance sheet. So a number of folks are pushing Apple to acquire another company, and this is another pathway towards growth. The largest acquisition Apple has done to date has been the acquisition of Beats Electronics, those great headphones that Dr. Dre came up with. And as a user of them, I'm actually a a big fan of the product. Wait, you have a pair of Beats? I sure do. Really? You don't see me dancing around at the gym with my Beats on? No, I, I tend to try to avoid you at the gym. Oh, okay. All right. Well, the truth comes out. So the idea here is that if Apple were to stage one or more large-scale acquisitions, perhaps they could achieve growth through an acquired product versus building one itself. It's worked for other companies. It has, it has, and it's also failed for plenty of others, and that's why it's a risky strategy. Well, let's think about what kind of companies Apple could acquire. You said you have Beats. Now, I know another product you use, and I actually use as well, that you love is Fitbit. Would that be a good fit? Or is it, we've talked about this before, though, is it in competition with that Apple Watch? Yeah, so Fitbit's a great, great company and a great product in my opinion. I'm very biased. I've used Fitbit products for years. I just got one of their, uh, bought one of their newer uh, model watches, and I'm very happy with it. Uh, it's priced reasonably, both the product as well as the company. The company has a market cap in the low billions, which is really a, a, a rounding error for a company like Apple. The real question, though, is what would Apple do with a company like Fitbit? Apple has the Apple Watch, which does, to a large degree, what the Fitbit does and much more. So if they're acquiring Fitbit customers and hope to upsell those customers on other Apple products, perhaps this type of acquisition makes sense. But I think it would be a tough sell. I don't think Apple would be interested in a company like Fitbit. I did read recently, though, that Tim Cook said he wants one of the legacies of Apple to be health, a lasting impact on health. That's been a big part of his mission is to uh, incorporate some element of health awareness and health improvement in Apple's products. And I think, I think that's a noble cause. And, I've, and frankly, I think Apple is um, superior in terms of its technology in facilitating better health across the world. Um, 
whether that means acquiring a company like Fitbit or other healthcare companies or health um, health enhancement product based companies uh, remains to be seen. We'll have to keep an eye out on that. Absolutely. Switching gears to another Wall Street darling, Amazon. Now, this is less about the company and more about its founder. Recently, Jeff Bezos has announced that he's getting a divorce from his longtime wife. I think 25 years? Yeah, yeah. Um, Really sad. They looked like a very happy, and I have to say they're a very telegenic couple. In fact, I think they look better today than they did 25 years ago. Now, did this have any effect on on Wall Street? Did anybody take this in a negative light or did Amazon keep trucking along as it sort of has? There was a minor hiccup when the news broke yesterday, but Amazon stock seems to be holding up reasonably well. And much of that has to do with the fact that uh, the announcement was handled very professionally. They both tweeted about the divorce. Um, they, they hinted at the fact that this is now going to be an amicable process. And shareholders have a great deal of confidence in Jeff Bezos. He's not the kind of CEO who uh, tends to make uh, impulse-based decisions. Chances are he and his wife have talked this through, and they both recognize that they have a big stake in the company. And if the company performs well, then they both benefit. If they manage this process poorly, the company will suffer and they will both suffer financially. I was about to say, speaking of settlements, I mean, Amazon's got to be a part of this settlement. Well, Jeff Bezos is worth uh, north of $130 billion. So in a worst case scenario for him, he splits his assets, primarily Amazon stock with his wife. So she comes away with north of 60, $65 billion. That's not likely to happen for a number of reasons. First, if that involved liquidating that amount of Amazon stock, it would certainly send the stock tumbling. So that wouldn't benefit anyone. There are ways around this, and I'm not a divorce lawyer, so I don't want to um, speak about things that, that, that I'm not necessarily familiar with, but in general terms, there can be ways to protect those assets for all parties involved. Setting up trusts could be uh, a, an interesting option for them, and perhaps those trusts are in his soon-to-be ex-wife's name, in his children's name. Right, they have four kids. They have they have four kids. So there, there could be ways around it. Uh, it could also be parceled out over many years, so it doesn't create any major um, shakeup in the stock market. Or, or maybe they just agree on a smaller settlement. The reality is we're talking about billions of dollars, not thousands of dollars here. So whether she walks away with $1 billion or $65 billion, she's a very wealthy woman. So I can't wait that 25 years hoping for a, a multi-billion dollar, dollar settlement from you, I guess, right? Well, if, that, if we ever went down that road, it would look a lot different than that. Well, see, that, that's, that's part of my strategy here, to not become a billionaire so you don't decide to divorce me and take away my billion. Okay. All right. We'll keep going with that. Good. Although it looks like we won't be breaking up anytime soon, let's circle back to Sears. That is kind of like a bad breakup that just isn't ending. Am I not right here? Uh, yeah, it, it really is. Basically, Sears is is trying to divorce itself from its um, 
its shareholders and really the broader market. But it, it goes a step further. It's almost like Sears is trying to divorce and leave the country all at the same time. The fact of the matter is... That would be your style. Exactly. But I, hopefully I'd fare better than Sears. The fact of the matter is it's a mess. It's a disaster. So the, the, the latest update is as follows. Sears is in the midst of bankruptcy. The uh, controlling investor who runs a, a hedge fund and has been managing Sears now for over a decade has made a bid to essentially save Sears. Uh, when I say save Sears, it means uh, preserving the jobs and a number of stores. Shareholders will, for the most part, be wiped out, and some of the debt holders will take a, a, a haircut. The uh, bankruptcy court recently uh, ruled that Sears can formalize its bid, but it has to go up against other bids, and those other bids will likely be focused on liquidation. So in other words, if someone comes in with a liquidation bid above this most recent bid, then liquidation will be the result. They'll sell off Sears in pieces. But if nobody comes in and the amount of the bid is $5 billion, if they come in south of $5 billion, well then Sears will survive in some form. And I think most importantly, keep people in their jobs. I mean, this is tens of thousands of jobs. Tens of thousands of jobs. So I think uh, for the betterment of humanity, if nothing else, it would be great to see Sears survive. There are a lot of folks who will be out of work if this business collapses. And speaking of the retail sector, we got some news that the retailers are saying they didn't do as well as they expected over the holiday season. No, Bloomberg News reported this morning that uh, Macy's and Target all fared rather poorly or below expectations during the holiday season. And of course, it, that's had a ripple effect across the retail sector. People are essentially asking the question, has retail seen its best days? And it's anyone's question, really it's anyone's um, guess as to, to where we go from here. If the economy is uh, sometimes measured by retail, then this doesn't bode well for the broader economy. Now, though, I just I wanna add one more point. This could also be, again, the Amazon effect. It's quite possible that people just spent more time shopping online and that will be um, determined in the coming weeks when Amazon releases its quarterly results. Because we went into the holiday season with lots of upbeat news about how much consumers were spending, that this was a big holiday season. And we're just not seeing it necessarily in the retail, but we're going to find out where we did see all that spending, right? Yes. The lesson in all of this is sit tight. In the next four to six weeks, we will have a clear sense as to what the uh, retail consumer is thinking. And I know that uh, delivery trucks, that's maybe one business to be getting into now. If it is all going online, maybe that's the next big thing. Sure, delivery get, trucks. Get, getting into the, the packaging and, and trucking business. You bet. UPS, FedEx, sure, uh, that might be the way to go. Well, there's a lot to look out for in the coming weeks as we start off a new year, as we start off 2019 Ruben, thank you as always for your insights. And we will be back with another episode of Wall Street to Main Street. Again, I'm your host, Emily Advani, here with my co-host and husband, Ruben Advani. Thank you, Emily.